صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners. Another great show for you on Palestine Remembered. We're joined today by Mel and Mo'ayyad from Free Palestine Melbourne. You remember last week we spoke about their upcoming forum, When Prison is a Weapon, the Palestinian Reality. That's tomorrow night, Sunday, from 8 till 9.30 p.m. Go to fpmelbourne.org, fpmelbourne.org, to register. Exciting super-duper guests from Palestine, Nadia Dukka, Bassem Tamimi, a very famous Palestinian, might recall his daughter, Ahad, spent seven months in jail for slapping an army officer in her front yard after they had shot her cousin. And Yusuf Adrimawi, a famous 3CR presenter and our co-host. So good morning, Mal and Mo'ayed. Welcome. Thank you, Nasser. Morning, Nasser. Good morning. This is a very topical topic following the magnificent Shawshank Palestine redemption of the escapees that escaped from prison a few weeks ago with a spoon. Sadly, they're all captured now. Is that what propelled this idea? Oh, yes. Uh, it's um, actually a good opportunity to raise awareness about the Palestinian prisoners movement and the centrality of of this of the prisoner struggle in, in the Israeli jails. Uh, so uh, we're having those guests, Nadia Dakta, Yusuf Rimawi, and Basim Tamimi, I think they will uh, give us a very good understanding about what the prisoners facing in the Israeli jails. Reality, as we know, something like a million Palestinians have been imprisoned since the occupation began. And today there's thousands of Palestinian prisoners are all illegally detained by an occupying power. They are prisoners of war, not criminals. These aren't criminals. These aren't people who have broken the law. They're people who are resisting an illegal and inhumane occupation. Mel, recently, you'd know Khalida Jarrah was released. Sadly, this is a, a member of the Palestinian National Council, an elected representative of the Palestinian people. While she was in jail, her daughter had a heart attack and died suddenly, wasn't uh, afforded the opportunity to be released. But she's a, a prisoner of conscience that was held under administrative detention. Do you want to talk to that evil machination? I mean, she's an absolute hero, heroine of the Palestinian struggle. I know um, every Palestinian looks up to her and what she represents politically, and that they, you know, the Israelis have been unable to break her spirit in her her fight for Palestinian freedom. Um, yeah, when that story broke of her daughter Suha dying so suddenly, I think it shattered a lot of people. It was absolutely heartbreaking. And you watched it spread across social media and people try to galvanise support to get her released from jail so she could just go and bury her daughter. Um, and then just this week, yeah, I saw the, the pictures of her. She's finally been released not three months later. The, the absolute inhumanity of it is difficult to comprehend. And her first place she goes, understandably, is to the grave of her daughter. I mean, that it just, it, it just, it's difficult to fathom the pain that this system, 
that Israel has built and created inflicts on, on Palestinians. It's absolutely designed to break the soul, uh, to break the back of the Palestinian people and the struggle. I think that's also why this, the, the prison break was so incredible because here was a system that is so all-pervasive that, as you just said, a million prisoners since 1967, it, there's not a family that's not touched by, by prisons um, and by the experience of Israeli prisons. And here was six prisoners with not really a plan, it would seem, other than a spoon to dig themselves out of one of the highest security prisons that Israel, you know, touts around the world. It's sort of, it was so symbolic because it represented that despite everything Israel does, it, it hasn't broken the spirit of these prisoners. And I, I guess that's what we wanted to, why we wanted to take the opportunity to, to talk about what that experience is and to put this forum together. It's a brilliant idea. And we should just quickly touch on the fact what administrative detention is. It's charged without the right to see your charges, charged without the right to see the evidence against you, charged without the right for your representative to see that evidence and just rolling six months of incarcerations. Moaiya, before we talk more about the guests, Israel has been accused of medical malpractice. Many Palestinians are hurt or sick in Israeli detention, gulags. But during the past week, we lost Hussein Malra, who um, he spent almost 20 years in, in jail. He died at the age of 39. He, he died of leukemia. But in fact, he'd been sick for some time. And this is not unique. Absolutely. This is a, a very famous practice by the Israeli prison authorities. And they mean to do it in, in every mean. And he's not the only one. And the history of the Israeli prison is awful. Because, um, for example, if you uh, in the Israeli prison and you want to actually see the dentist, they actually schedule you for maybe two or three months appointment. So uh, just to see uh, a dentist, this is how they treat people inside. And uh, always the prisoners put strategies to gain rights and to gain freedom, to, to gain the right of, of, of living in dignity, to gain right of basic needs. And uh, as Mel mentioned before, that's why it was significant to break the jail by those six escapees and uh, seeking freedom using basic tools as a spoon. So I guess this design to break the Palestinian spirit, to break the Palestinian dream, just made to, to break them hard. The last two prisoners, Mel, the last two prisoners were caught in Jenin. They handed themselves in, in the end, because they knew what would happen if the Israelis came to get them, irrespective of their own fear of their own mortality, they knew that anybody that was near them would also be killed. So they handed themselves in. I'm interested to your thoughts on, we see so many extrajudicial murders and assassinations by the Israelis when, you know, they allege that a Palestinians attacked them. Here were a couple of Palestinians serving life sentences who'd escaped, who'd had two weeks of freedom that they managed to apprehend without shooting them. I mean, uh, it's, it's startling. It really shows the reality of, of Israel for what it is. And honestly, settler colonial states, I mean, it, it's a stark parallel there to with Palestinians, yes, to, by Israel's standards, highly dangerous individuals that they managed to apprehend without, without injury. Um, and yet the number of stories, it was, it's, it's almost a 
weekly, even times daily news story that you hear someone is killed by the Israelis and then there's, you know, an allegation that they've ran, there was a car ramming or that they had a knife or something like that. And then you go look at the footage and you just sort of go, what's going on here? It's a disturbing regularity. And the parallel that you have in like in the US here, the way that um, African-Americans and, and Aboriginal people here get, get the deaths in custody and the deaths being apprehended by the police versus, you know, you had the guy in the Northern Territory, the white guy who was up in Darwin terrorising people and they managed to bring him in and he had heaps of weapons. So um, it sort of it shows something about the, the state and the, the structures of power in these these settler colonial sort of supremacist structured states, they know what they're doing. They they know how to wield power. And I, and I think in this particular case, you, these, these guys are heroes for Palestinians. And to have killed them or even injured them, I mean, probably should be careful with my words because they have been tortured since they've been taken into custody. But to kill them would have just, that really would have galvanised something. And so they knew that that wasn't what, they could do um it would backfire it's it's a quite deliberate um strategy and and structure within these states and it, it's something that bears pointing out and observing you're right i remember what's about six years ago the guy's name was dylan roof he went into a black church shot and killed nine people the police squad surrounded the place the swat team you know all the kitten caboodle they apprehended him the police chief said he was a, you know, a polite, quiet guy. Um, and on the way back to the police station, he said he was a bit hungry. And so they stopped off at Burger King and got him a burger. You're listening to Mel and Mo'ayyad from Free Palestine, Melbourne. They're, we're talking about the upcoming event tomorrow night at 8pm. Go to fpmelbourne.org to register for When Prison is a Weapon, the Palestinian Reality. fpmelbourne.org. Mu'ayyad, today in Israel's gulags in their prisons, there's close to 5,000 Palestinian political prisoners, over 500 of them administrative detainees, 200 children, 40 female, 544 serving life sentences, and another 499 with sentences of more than 20 years. So that's 1,000 people serving more than 20 years out of a population of 5,000. One in five Palestinians will never see free daylight ever again. What do you say about a system that can convict at 99% and give such such outrageous uh, sentences? Yeah, um, the Israeli um, occupation, they don't need any excuse to detain people. So they're, they're designed to cause pain to the, to the Palestinians. And they use the uh, prison as a tool as we mentioned before. And this tool, it's increasing in, in the way that actually become more wild and more focused on the, uh, to, to break the daily life of every Palestinian. So for example, as you mentioned, the administrative detention and how Khalid Jarrah deprived from attending the funeral of her daughter. This is beyond any human. Uh, values. This is beyond any uh, human, you know, principles. Therefore, we always say that we share the pain with our prisoners, and 
with their families, with their kids and uh, mothers and daughters. And I, I was exploring the other day about Isra Jabiz. She she's a beautiful lady, and uh, she was accidentally had an accident next to a checkpoint, where she trying to go and change her gas cylinder so she can actually cook to her family. So suddenly the gas cylinder exploded from the heat and caused her car to be, to burn, and she burned as well. But the Israeli soldiers at that checkpoint take it a very good excuse to detain her. And she's facing a 20 years sentence. The other day, her son's birthday, he said, I miss my mother. So how the Israeli can explain such awful act to detain people in, in such bad way? As you mentioned, 995 Convention right. It's not normal anywhere. No. We never hear that in any country in this planet. Mayid, you certainly don't hear it in countries that claim to be democracies. You certainly, um, it happens perhaps in Russia, it would have happened in Syria under the Assad father and son, it would have happened in China, but it doesn't happen in, you know, Western democracies. And certainly when Israel purports to be one, we should remind everybody that it's an apartheid state with two sets of rules and two sets of laws, depending on when you celebrate God. And We've got about a minute left, Mel. How about you tell us a little bit about Free Palestine Melbourne? And listeners, don't forget to go to fpmelbourne.org and the details will be in the podcast on how to register. Give us a little bit on FP Melbourne. Yeah, we're a group of activists from all walks of life, Palestinian and non-Palestinian alike, um, Jewish and Israeli members as well. And we come together once a month, for, uh, the second Saturday of the month. Hopefully soon we'll be back to meeting in person, but we welcome anyone who just wants to come and get involved. You know, you don't have to have any particular skills. You just have to have a belief in Palestinian freedom, in the rightness of the struggle uh, and a willingness to show up and give you time. So if you want to get involved, please check us out. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we have a website, and we hope you'll join us on Sunday for the forum. So Sunday at 8pm, so fpmelbourne.org. Thanks, Mayad. Thanks, Mel. It's been great talking to you today. Thank you, Nasser. Thanks, Nasser. And now we're joined by Nick Rose from Sustain and Rasha Taya, who is a nutritionist and founder of Bet El Shea, House of Tea. Welcome, guys. Hi, Nasser. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having us. No, a real pleasure. Now, we've got a very, very exciting new campaign that you're, you're launching, Nick. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Sustain and then this project that you're putting together for Gaza? Sure. So Sustain, the Australian Food Network, is a national sustainable food systems organisation established in 2016, based in Melbourne, but we work across Australia. Our mission is to design and build better food systems. We stand for a principle-based food system for the human right to safe, adequate and culturally appropriate food for all peoples everywhere, regardless of their status. We stand for food sovereignty and food democracy and food justice. Uh, we work with uh, people and organisations right across the food system all around Australia. Uh, so this campaign is in response to a request for solidarity support that we received from the Gaza Urban and Peri Urban Agriculture Platform, GUPAP, who actually participated in our second National Urban Agriculture Forum held at William Anglis Institute in February 2018. They reached out to us after the uh, bombing of Gaza Strip in May uh, with a request for support to help them work with a women network that they've been uh, forming over the last few months and years, the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum, uh, as a campaign to 
achieve their aspirations for food sovereignty, not just for Gaza, but for Palestine as a whole. So that's what this campaign is about. Fantastic. Can you tell me what peri-urban means? Uh, so urban agriculture means growing food in cities, and that's a big part of what we do in Sustain. In fact, we've just launched a food justice farm in Preston, uh, the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm, and that is about uh, helping cities become uh, centres of connection, of flourishing food production. This is going to be really important worldwide, but particularly in the Australian context dealing with climate change. Uh, so that's urban agriculture, growing food in um, in metropolitan contexts and spaces. Peri-urban is it that that fringe interface zone between the city and the country. So we also do a lot of work with Cardinia Shire Council, about 60 kilometres from Melbourne CBD, the Cardinia Food Circles project that we've been working on uh, with the council out there and producers and multiple partners since 2016. Uh, so there's a lot of agricultural land but the city is sprawling uh, out there. So that is the, the that kind of intermediate or interface zone between the city and regional and rural areas. That's peri-urban. Fantastic. Well, there's an article in goodfood.com.au. We'll put a link for that in the podcast as well as Sustain's web address as well. Russia, you're a nutritionist and herbalist, Better Shea founder. What's your involvement in this project? So I've been involved in researching food sovereignty in Palestine. Well, firstly, because I'm Palestinian and it's where, I'm, where I come from. And also I uh, have a background in nutrition and herbalism, as you mentioned. Um, my involvement has been mostly um, supporting the campaign by interviewing uh, women from Gaza who are the agripreneurs. And so talking about the enterprises and translating those stories from Arabic into English. That's basically what I'm doing. <laughs> okay. And in food sovereignty, what does that actually mean? So in the context of Palestine, but also globally, when we talk about food sovereignty, it's a response to food justice, not just food security or access to food. When I think of food sovereignty, in Palestine, for example, we're talking about access to land, uh, access to water, how people are growing food. However, with the occupation of, with the Israeli occupation and continued colonization that has really systemically destroyed uh, both human lives and also the livelihoods and farming um, due to land theft and water theft and water theft as well. Just wanted to add to that. So farmers in Palestine, like many farmers around the world, have lost heirloom seeds. And in fact, the industrial military complex and corporate consolidation of our food system can be understood by looking at the seed industry, not just in Palestine, but globally. And so that's also a really important lens to look through when trying to understand food sovereignty, where the seeds are coming from, there are four companies, for example, that control 70% of the private global seed market. And these corporations know that 80 to 90% of peasant seeds that are saved and shared and locally traded are bad for corporate business. And so um, a lot of Palestinian farmers who are saving seeds are unable to, to trade those seeds among, amongst themselves. So these are just some examples of food sovereignty efforts 
trading seeds, for example. Nick, you were speaking about peri-urban and the reality of Gazans, the most densely populated place on earth. You know, we talk about it often on the show. It's only 365 square kilometres, 2 million people, 5,500 people per square kilometre. If Australia had that population density, there'd be 42 billion people in Australia to give people an idea in the context of just how dense it is there. It becomes essential in places like Gaza, peri-urban agriculture, because land is so scarce. Absolutely. And a, a huge part of this campaign, and this comes back to what Russia was saying about food sovereignty, it's really about uh, people access, accessing food in a dignified way, accessing the food that they want to eat, that they've grown themselves, not being dependent on external aid. And this is something that um, the colleagues from GUPAP have been saying to us again and again. We've been in weekly dialogue with them about this campaign since early June, and they've been stressing to us uh, again and again, we don't want humanitarian aid, we don't want more handouts, it creates dependency, that's not what we want, we want dignity, we want to be able to feed ourselves and have self-determination, and that's what food sovereignty uh, means in, in this context. And absolute, you're absolutely right, um, in terms of that aspiration, uh, Gazans being able to feed themselves, being able to trade with uh, with Palestinians in the West Bank, um, uh, being able to access uh, inputs through importing and exporting their products, all those things are really important components of food sovereignty. And just to give you um, and, and the listeners a bit of a sense of the, uh, the setback that they've suffered as a result of that uh, bombing campaign in May, these are figures from the Ministry of Agriculture that GUPAP have shared with us. Direct losses and damage from that bombing campaign to the agriculture sector uh, in, uh, in Gaza, $126 million. Indirect losses, uh, nearly $79 million. And we think we're talking about healthy food. The vegetable sector suffered losses of, of nearly $44 million, uh, over $4.5 million of damage to fruit orchards. Um, uh, and uh, in terms of plant nurseries and seedling damage, um, uh, nearly a million dollars. So greenhouses, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the, the, the basic infrastructure that Gazans need to feed themselves has suffered a huge setback. So what we're trying to do with this campaign is to make a you know, tangible contribution as uh, Australians in civil society uh, who feel a strong sense of solidarity and empathy with what the people in Gaza are going through to help them rebuild their food system and be able to food, feed themselves. But so much more needs to be done, uh, not least the lifting of the blockade and the embargo on Gaza and uh, allowing the people there to expand their food production and feed themselves. Nick, let's speak for a second specifically on the campaign and the goals of the campaign. Trying to raise $25,000 and that will do... What? That's going to uh, the uh, Gaza Urban and Peri-Urban Agriculture Platform have been supporting the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum to organise as a women-led collective. Uh, there's now 100 uh, small-scale women producers across various uh, sectors from small-scale livestock such as rabbits to, uh, to seed banks to small-scale food processing such as stevia uh, to uh, poultry, uh, eggs and meat chickens uh, to horticulture. Uh, so a really diverse range uh, across the uh, small-scale agricultural system to help those women with uh, directly through uh, through recovering through infrastructure uh, inputs that they need, uh, but also to help them build themselves as a as a network and as a collective to advocate more strongly to the uh, Palestinian Ministry of Agriculture and authorities 
uh, for their human rights, for their uh, for their dignity, to work with GUPAP to become uh, a more powerful voice uh, within Gaza, within Palestine, but also across the Middle East and and internationally, uh, build their relations with uh, with groups like ourselves in Australia, with colleagues in in Europe and the UK. Uh, to really uh, raise their voices and achieve their aspirations for food sovereignty in Palestine. Fantastic. Nick, just a final question for you, more a comment, if you will. This is crudely teaching the people to fish and not just giving them fish. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a really good way to summarise it. Um, what's the saying that you give someone a fish, you feed them for a day, you teach them to fish and they are able to fish for a lifetime. But here, you know, these women and small-scale producers in Palestine and Gaza, you know, they know uh, what to do. So it's not that we're teaching them uh, anything in particular. We're helping them uh, materially, concretely to recover from, uh, you know, the impacts of the blockade and concretely the impacts of the bombing in May uh, to to rebuild their capacity to uh, to feed themselves, to feed their families and communities. Um, that's what this is about. Now, Russia, like every good Palestinian, you're advocating for our people, and thank you for that work. Russia, you've been speaking to some of the women in Gaza. Can you share a couple of their stories for us? Sure. So I spoke with um, Hanadi last week, and she actually has established a seed bank. And we had this lovely conversation around how how rich you can feel when you save seeds and when you hold those seeds that are, you know, a metaphor for, for life, really. Um, and what struck me is how important it is to be preserving culture and preserving seeds and preserving those stories and also sharing them so that our Indigenous knowledge continues and our, and our history and our, and our culture continues. Um, so Hanadi was one of the agripreneurs who's, who will require some assistance to rebuild the project. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a really humbling experience to, to witness and be present with, with people in Gaza and, and everything they endure and their resilience and their strength is is just incredible and yeah deeply deeply moving deeply moving i mean i know whenever i speak to somebody in, in palestine russia i come away with a feeling of sometimes of just my own you know disappointment in myself that i might be upset that i stubbed my toe you know the the reality, the, the sense of awesomeness, of invincibility, of strength, of magnanimity that you get to speaking to a Palestinian in Gaza who hasn't been outside for 15 years, they're um, hermetically sealed in an open-air prison. The, the daily calorific intake of the occupants of this prison is calculated and only that much food goes in. When you speak to them, you, you mm. can't help but feel, be filled with a sense of awe. Exactly. And I've been really humbled and completely lost for words in describing um yeah this this experience um it's just incredible so much respect and much solidarity to the people of gaza one of the other founders i spoke with uh, or agripreneurs i spoke with her name was also hanadi and um she uses um solar powered technology to dry fruits and herbs 
And also one of the really striking things about her project is that she collaborates with farmers where there is surplus produce that is not um, sold at the market. So nothing goes to waste. So she would um, pick up some of that produce and dry it and resell it. So um, there's a range of incredible projects and enterprises um, in Gaza. And it really speaks to the strength, but also the fragility of the food system in Gaza as well, because um, people are putting a lot of work. And as we know, land theft, water theft, um, the seizure over Gaza, yet people's spirit is, is strong and people are willing to rebuild and, and keep going. And that is really, really important to support. Yeah, no, one thing we know as an Indigenous people, the connection to land won't ever Absolutely. be broken. Thanks so much, Nick and Russia, for joining us. Listeners, go to sustain.org.au, sustain.org.au. The link will be in the podcast. We're trying to raise $25,000, all donations above $2 are tax deductible. So you'll be able to make a tax deductible donation, help some agripreneurs, a new word I've learned, uh, in Palestine, uh, support our Palestinian women in, in their desire and plight for food sustainability and independence. Thanks so much, Nick and Russia. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much, Nessa. Thanks for listening to Palestine Remembered. Be sure to tell your friends, share the podcast, and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine. <laughs>